Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 272. Today's big Bible question, should Christians test themselves to see if they are genuine? Well, happy Thursday to you, dear friends. Today we are talking about testing one of the 14 most anxiety-inducing words in the English language. Even though it has been quite a long time since I was in high school or college, I want to tell you a story about a test. Do not follow my example. In my freshman year of college, I was an English major, didn't really care what my major was, since my plan was to graduate, jump into criminal justice school, earn a master's degree, catch on with the FBI, and work with Agent Scully and Mulder. Well, it didn't quite work out like that, but I did enjoy English, and maybe I learned a thing or two along the way. I hope I did. My second semester, I had a pretty hard teacher, and going into the final, I had a low B in the class, and I knew I had to study so I didn't lower my grade, but I, not possessing the finest mind for scheduling in the world, thought my final exam was on Thursday and therefore delayed studying until Wednesday night because I was a procrastinator. That Wednesday evening, I pulled out my handy-dandy syllabus and discovered that my final exam, which was around 25% of the grade, had already happened on Tuesday. Now, as I sat there, sweat dripping down my brow, I tried to remember whether I had a low B or a high C, because that was an important consideration. I also clearly remembered Dr. Pododo's words echoing in my ears, There will be no rescheduling of this test. If you miss it, that will be a zero. Be there. Ice water ran through my veins as the cold chill of failure came over my soul. I had blown it and I was an English major and this meant I'd probably get an F plus, no such thing, or D minus, there is those, in that class. Eek! So I just stared at my syllabus, going through possible plans, what I could do, when the worst plan in the history of academics formed in my mind. Do nothing. Don't call, don't beg for mercy, don't do a single thing. And that dumb plan is what I did, dreading the entire winter break as I awaited my grades to be mailed out. For you see, I went to school at a time when grades weren't really posted on the internet back then, not like today. The grades eventually came in through snail mail, and to my delight and astonishment, The most ill-conceived plan in the history of plans had somehow worked. I had the same grade going into the test on my grade report as I had coming out of the test. What happened? I have no earthly idea. I thanked God, and I never saw that professor again. My best guess is that she thought she lost my test and just gave me the same grade on it that I had coming in. I don't know. Who knows? Now, when I think about testing. I think about stories like that. Unfortunately, we aren't really talking about school testing today, so I will give myself a solid C- minus for that intro, and honestly, that's being generous. It's really probably more like D work. What it had in uniqueness is taken away by lack of applicability. Alas, you can do better, Mr. Thompson. See me after class. Well, today's Bible readings include 2 Corinthians 13, our focus passage, and also 2 Samuel 20, Psalms 75 and 76, and Ezekiel 27. 2 Samuel is every bit as violent as you'd expect. You know what, though? (laughs) It's actually a bit more violent than you might expect, and today we're going to be reading about a severed head being tossed over a wall. 
Now, for those of you that think I just made that up to be funny, well, (laughs) I'd sort of like to see the expression on your face right around verse 22. I wonder if Joab caught it. I don't think I would have. Let's exit this grisly discussion and read the final chapter of 2 Corinthians together because that's going to be far more profitable. Listen out for Paul's command to test yourself and be pondering what in the world that might mean for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I gave a warning when I was present the second time, and now I give a warning while I am absent to those who sinned and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient since you seek proof Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? And I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test. But we pray to God that you do nothing wrong, not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. For we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray that you become fully mature. This is why I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am there, I may not have to deal harshly with you in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greetings. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So let's review verse 5 again, which says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test? Now, I preached a fairly challenging message on this passage several years ago to a dearly beloved church that I used to serve in. A good friend challenged me later with the question, wouldn't it be better to reassure people of their salvation rather than cause them to question it? You know, that's actually a good question. I wrestled with it for quite some time. I did not then, nor do I want now, saved people to doubt that Jesus has saved them. I did not want to introduce doubt where no doubt should exist. However, Thinking about Jesus' teaching about the wheat and the tares, which indicates that his followers would be difficult to distinguish from false followers of Jesus, I thought it a good thing to challenge the church with this passage in this verse in particular and to urge them to consider whether or not Jesus was in them. The fact is, Jesus says the road to life is narrow and few find it, while the road to destruction is broad and apparently most go down that road. Now, many people put their trust in walking the aisle or some such thing in a church to save them, like a decision made as a child or something along those lines. Paul does not here tell the Corinthians to consider whether or not their conversion was real, but tells them to look at the present. Is Jesus in you? Now, this is both a powerful passage that testifies to the reality of what's called the perseverance of the saints, which is the belief and doctrine that Jesus will fully save those for eternity who are saved by grace through faith. No truly saved person will fall away from Jesus. It is also, and by the way, that's not by their power to hold on, it's by his power to hold on. 
It is also, this verse, a powerful challenge to those who are trusting in something, anything, other than Jesus to save them. For those trusting in good works and church attendance, Paul asks, is Jesus in you? Test yourself. For those trusting in the religion of their parents, Paul asks, is Jesus in you? For those trusting in any other hope rather than faith in Jesus to save them, Paul is saying, is Jesus present in you? So how do we test ourselves? How do we answer that question? I think it's a great thing to consider. And I would begin that test by by looking for the fruit of the Spirit in my life and the presence of Jesus in my life. The team over at gotquestions.org has a very compelling and easy to understand answer to this question, so please allow me to refer to it here. This was not the first time Paul had admonished the Corinthians to examine themselves. Earlier, he had observed the church participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and he told them everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. That's, of course, from 1 Corinthians 11.28. Believers are to examine their motives, their actions, and the current condition of their hearts to make sure they don't bring God's discipline on themselves. Paul's primary concern was to bring spiritual health and wholeness to the Christian community in Corinth. If the individuals were genuinely saved in the faith, then they would know that Jesus Christ lived inside them. His Holy Spirit would be at work within them, promoting sanctification and living in accordance to the Word of God. But if their lives showed no evidence of the Spirit's activity, then Jesus Christ was not indwelling them. And if Christ was not in them, they failed the test. In other words, they weren't Christians. Rather than cross-examining other people, trying to figure out if Joe or Barbara or Phil or whatever is a Christian, believers are supposed to stick to examine their own lives. Get the log out of your eye. Examine yourself. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, says Galatians 6.4, for instance. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul told them, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified, 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul made it a practice to test himself too. He knew that no one could skate past God's judgment. The words examine yourself and the word test yourself, the phrase, essentially means the same thing. Some Bible versions say look carefully at yourself or ask yourself. One way to test yourself is to check for evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. But the fruit of the Spirit, says Galatians 5.22 and 23, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Jesus confirmed in Matthew 7.15 that prophets of God are recognized by their fruits. A tough but spiritually beneficial question to ask ourselves regularly is, what is my spiritual condition? The prophet Jeremiah called God's people to honest self-evaluation and repentance. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. Because the fact is, when we do examine ourselves and test ourselves, we're going to, and we test ourselves by God's word, we're going to find areas where our lives don't line up to God's word. And so Jeremiah rightly calls us to repentance there. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 says, uh, For us to test everything, to renounce what is evil, and to hold fast to what is good in ourselves. We might consider making this our prayer as David did. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's Psalm 139, 23, and 24, and it's a wonderful prayer 
for you and I both to pray. 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now a wicked man, a Benjaminite named Sheba, son of Bichri, happened to be there. He blew the ram's horn and shouted, We have no portion in David, no inheritance in Jesse's son. Each man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan all the way to Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. When David came to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and placed them under guard. He provided for them, but he was not intimate with them. They were confined until the day of their death, living as widows. The king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah to me within three days and be here yourself. Amasa went to summon Judah, but he took longer than the time allotted him. So David said to Abishai, Sheba, son of Bichri, will do more harm to us than Absalom. Take your lord's soldiers and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and elude us. So Joab's men, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the warriors marched out under Abishai's command. They left Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. They were at the great stone in Gibeon when Amasa joined them. Joab was wearing his uniform, and over it was a belt around his waist with a sword in its sheath. As he approached, the sword fell out. Joab asked Amasa, Are you well, my brother? Then with his right hand, Joab grabbed Amasa by the beard to kiss him. Amasa was not on guard against the sword in Joab's hand, and Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it and spilled his intestines out on the ground. Joab did not stab him again, and Amasa died. Sorry, I forgot to warn you about that part. Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. One of Joab's young men had stood over Amasa, saying, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. Now Amasa had been writhing in his blood in the middle of the highway, and the man had seen all that, the, that all the troops stopped. So he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him, because he realized that all who, those who encountered Amasa were stopping. When he was removed from the highway, all the men passed and followed Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of beth Makkah. All the Barites came together and followed him. Joab's troops came and besieged Sheba and Abel of beth Makkah. They built a siege ramps against the outer wall of the city, while all the troops with Joab were battering the wall to make it collapse. A wise woman called out from the city, Listen, listen, please tell Joab to come here and let me speak with him. When he had come near her, the woman asked, Are you Joab? I am, he replied. Listen to the words of your servant, she said to him. He answered, I'm listening, she said. In the past, they used to say, Seek counsel in Abel, and that's how they settled disputes. I am one of the peaceful and faithful in Israel, but you're trying to destroy a city that is like a mother in Israel. Why would you devour the Lord's inheritance? Joab protested, Never! I would never devour or demolish. That's not the case. There is a man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, who has rebelled against King David. Deliver this one man, and I will withdraw from the city. The woman replied to Joab, Watch, his head will be thrown over the wall to you. The woman went to all the people with her wise counsel, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the ram's horn, and they dispersed from the city, each to his own tent. Joab returned to the king in Jerusalem. Joab commanded the whole army of Israel. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and Pelethites. Adoram was over forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahulod, was court historian. Shiva was court secretary. 
Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and in addition, Ira the Jerite was David's priest. Ezekiel chapter 27 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Now son of man, lament for Tyre. Say to Tyre, who is situated at the entrance of the sea, merchant of the peoples to many coasts and islands, this is what the Lord God says. Tyre, you declared, I am perfect in beauty. Your realm was in the heart of the sea. Your builders perfected your beauty. They constructed all your planking with pine trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. They made your oaks of oaks, your oars of oaks from Bashan. They made your deck of cypress wood from the coasts of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. Your sail was made of fine embroidered linen from Egypt and served as your banner. Your awning was of blue and purple fabric from the coasts of Elisha. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your wise men were within you, Tyre. They were your captains. The elders of Gebel and its wise men were within you, repairing your leaks. All the ships of the sea and their sailors came to you to barter for your goods. Men of Persia, Lud and Pot, were in your army, serving as your warriors. They hung shields and helmets in you. They gave you splendor. Men of Arved and Helic were stationed on your walls all around, and Gematites were in your towers. They hung their shields all around your walls. They perfected your beauty. Tarshish was your trading partner because of the abundant wealth of every kind. They exchanged silver, iron, tin, and lead for your merchandise. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach were your merchants. They exchanged slaves and bronze utensils for your goods. Those from Beth Togomorah exchanged horses, war horses, and mules for your merchandise. Men of Dedan were also your merchants. Many coasts and islands were your regular markets. They brought back ivory tusks and ebony as your payment. Aram was your trading partner because of your numerous products. They exchanged turquoise, purple, and embroidered cloth, fine linen, coral, and rubies for your merchandise. Judah and the land of Israel were your merchants. They exchanged wheat from beneath, meal, honey, oil, and palm for your goods. Damascus was also your trading partner because of your numerous products and your abundant wealth of every kind, trading in wine from Helbon and white wool. Vidan and Javan from Yudsal dealt in your merchandise. Wrought iron, cassia, and aromatic cane were exchanged for your goods. Dedan was your merchant in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your business partners, trading with you in lambs, rams, and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah traded with you. For your merchandise, they exchanged the best of all spices and all kinds of precious stones as well as gold. Haran, Cana, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Asher, and Chilmad traded with you. They were your merchants in choice garments, cloaks of blue and embroidered materials, multicolored carpets which were bound and secured with cords in your marketplace. Ships of Tarshish were the carriers for your goods. So you became full and heavily loaded in the heart of the sea. Your rowers have brought you onto the high seas, but the east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the sea. Your wealth, merchandise, and goods... Your sailors and captains, those who repair your leaks, those who barter for your goods, and all the warriors on board with all the other people within you sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your downfall. The countryside shakes at the sounds of your sailors' cries. All the oarsmen disembark from their ships. The sailors and all the captains of the sea stand on the shore because of you. They raise their voices and cry out bitterly. They throw dust on their heads. They roll in ashes. They shave their heads because of you and wrap themselves in sackcloth. They weep over you with deep anguish and bitter mourning. In their wailing, they lament for you, mourning over you. Who was like Tyre, silenced in the middle of the sea, when your merchandise was unloaded from the seas? 
You satisfied many peoples. You enriched the kings of the earth with your abundant wealth and goods. Now you are wrecked by the sea and the depths of the waters. Your goods and the people within you have gone down. All the inhabitants of the coasts and islands are appalled at you. Their kings shudder with fear. Their faces are contorted. Those who trade among the people scoff at you. You have become an object of horror and will never exist again. Psalm chapter 75, verse 1. We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks to you, for your name is near. People tell about your wondrous works. When I choose a time, I will judge fairly. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. Selah. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. Exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert, for God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another, for there is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. As for me, I will tell about him forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Psalm chapter 76, verse 1. God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he shatters the bow's flaming arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Selah. You are resplendent and majestic, coming down from the mountains of prey. The brave-hearted have been plundered. They have slipped into their final sleep. None of the warriors was able to lift a hand. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both chariot and horse lay still. And you, you are to be feared. When you are angry, who can stand before you? From heaven you pronounced judgment. The earth feared and grew quiet when God rose up to judge and to save all the lowly of the earth. Selah. Even human wrath will praise you. You will clothe yourself with the wrath that remains. Make and keep your vows to the Lord your God. Let all who are around him bring tribute to the awe-inspiring one. He humbles the spirit of leaders. He is feared by the kings of the earth. Yes, Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let us walk in your wisdom. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.